Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only. And I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com. And if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written, published article, Who Is at the Helm?, from 1965, it's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump much more and remember subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week the cost is less than a beer at a bar and you get a better buzz with, with the savage premium so go to go to glow.fm slash savage premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else thank you very much welcome to the michael savage podcast for today, I decided to keep it very light and more family conversational because most people are, are in vacation mode. There's such terrible news out there that I thought I would give you something different, you know. First off, for those of you who do not follow me on my YouTube channel, I did a video on Memorial Day entitled Cyanide, A Childhood Memory, which is kind of cynical. I get it. Okay, Cyanide, A Childhood Memory. You'll enjoy it, I guarantee you. Setting up the camera, I like to work alone. No cameraman, no camera woman. Today is Memorial Day, and it's a day to remember those who fought so that I could be with you and say what I want. It's a day of freedom, and we honor those who gave their lives for our nation. Let me begin by saying this is going to be about a novel I'm working on. I've been working on it for quite a while and it's very slow going. I started it in May 2021. I've not gotten very far, maybe 20,000 words. I don't know how far. 
and I'm going to read you a piece of it. I initially entitled it Roses. As you can see, I write it, and I have to show you a picture first. This is a picture of my father, may he rest in peace, his store in New York City that I've written about many times, 137 Ludlow Street. See, like a Godfather kind of car, funeral parlor next door. So <clears throat> that's where most of this story takes place. Those of you who've seen my other books, my 28 published books, include A Savage Life, which has many of these stories in them. It's funny, though, as I get older and have a lot more time to think about it, some of those stories are coming to me in a different way. This is what it comes down to. Why would Monet repaint uh, lilies over and over and over again? Was he deluded? Was he senile? Did he have Alzheimer's disease? Or he kept trying to perfect the lily pads, right? You understand what I'm saying? I don't know if anyone's listening right now. You know, it's a Memorial Day weekend. People are barbecuing and whatever. This is my barbecue. I'm with you for the barbecue. And it, it, the story is my story. It could be a war story, but it's not going to be a war story because I never served in the war. My father and my uncles did. I didn't. But let's move past that. We honor. So this story is for all of you who served and those who have memories of serving. It's a gift to you. Well, I'm going to tell you a story. And so in the middle of this story, called Roses, I came to this part called Cyanide. And I'm gonna read it to you for your own entertainment. I'm giving you a, like a, a story to entertain you basically today. It's an entertaining story. You wanna hear it or not? Well, you want me to just do politics? Biden no good, communists taking over America. May they all go to hell and all of that. I mean, I could do that too. I don't wanna do that. I've, <clears throat> I've published three novels, Abuse of Power, A Time for War, and um, something with Mecca in it. All three were on the New York Times bestseller list. Most of you don't even know I'm a well-published best-selling novelist, in addition to being a political commentator. But this is different than those adventurous kind of thriller novels that were almost made for TV. They could never be made for TV because they were too politically extreme, meaning they were too real. They would never pass muster amongst the boys of Hollywood if you get the drift. The boys of Hollywood, right? Especially today, there's no transgenders in any of my novels or any hatred for America, no hatred for police, no hatred for the military. So forget about it. This story unto itself that I read you, the novella or novel, whatever it may be, I may burn it one day, contains a piece in it called Cyanide. And I thought I would entertain you by reading from the book. So here we go. Headline, Arizona wants to use Zyklon B to execute inmates on death row, unquote. The headline jumped out. The same gas used by the Nazis in death camp gas chambers, the deadly gas also known as hydrogen cyanide, unquote. An inmate scheduled to be executed argued that, quote, the potassium Cyanide does not meet the state's execution protocol, which explicitly demands that only sodium cyanide be used, unquote. As a boy, Martin was used as slave labor by his father to clean the patina from bronze statues. Later on, I'll show you some bronze statues. Every Saturday, while his friends were playing, he was forced to drive in with the tyrant over the East River from Queens to Manhattan. It'll toughen you up, he told the trusting young boy. It'll toughen you up. In the cold, dark basement of the store where he sold, quote, antiques and hand-me-downs, there were two large cardboard barrels marked cyanide. They both held small, white, crystallized balls of the deadly chemical. Martin was a curious child and had read somewhere that cyanide was used to execute prisoners. So he dared ask his dad. I read that cyanide is used to kill prisoners. With a knowing smile, the man lectured the boy, yeah, but they use sodium cyanide, not potassium cyanide like we have here in this basement. 
The small white balls were dropped in a bucket of water where they were dissolved into a caustic solution. Marty was shown how to do it and how to then brush the poisonous liquid on the patinated bronzes to strip them bare down to a shiny brass-like look. The emerging middle-class Jews who were his customers or the father seemed to like shiny statues mounted into lamps. Without so much as a mask, only long, thick rubber gloves, the trusting boy toiled away his Sabbaths, not in prayer to an almighty God. He would try to forget where he was, what he was doing, and what his still carefree friends were up to on those Saturdays. He'd think about girls mainly, and Francis. Sometimes he'd go into the one horrid, dirty bathroom in that basement and think about Francis's blue jeans. Francis and Monk rented one of the 10 stands inside of the antiques market on Ludlow Street, corner of Rivington. They were village beatniks who lived together. She must have been in her 20s, could have been in her 30s, always wore paint-splattered dungarees when women still wore dresses and white gloves. Being a boy, he imagined what sex with her would be like as he sloshed the poison on the cherubs, turning them from a fine chocolate brown to a gaudy brass-like finish. As he entered, as he entered high school and studied chemistry, he came to realize he had been only a few molecules away from death. <laughs> All those wasted Saturdays in that cold, dark basement. I like that, a few molecules away from death. Is that it? Oh, that's the end of that whole thing on, on, on cyanide. I think that was it. And then I go to the next piece of the book, which is two months, three months later. To know God, you had to know joy, be happy, crazy happy. And, and I talk about a whole, something else entirely. So where this book is actually going to go, I don't know. It's like me painting, uh, you know, those uh, lilies, the lily pants over and over again. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Have you become a victim of the timeshare trap? You think there's no way out? Well, Chuck McDowell, founder of Wesley Financial Group, has helped over 35,000 families out of financial hardship by getting them out of bad timeshares, and they may be able to help you too. Listen, if your timeshare agreement goes on forever, if you were told timeshares are a great investment or your maintenance fees will never go up, yeah, you need to get the facts about timeshare cancellation. For over 10 years, Wesley Financial Group has been dedicated to helping folks get out of a lifetime of debt by canceling their timeshares. So they created a free timeshare exit information kit that reveals how the timeshare industry works and your options for cancellation. To get your free timeshare exit information kit, simply go to iCancelTimeshare.com. That's iCancelTimeshare.com. I'll say it one more time, iCancelTimeshare.com. Thank you very much. iCancelTimeshare.com. I'm going to go back again to some of those stories that I've written before in more detail. Back again to the dank basement at 137 Ludlow Street, next door to which was the funeral parlor, Nyberg's funeral parlor. See, today it's a bar. I remember I went back there 10 years ago and it's been turned into some hip bar with uh, the hipsters outside smoking cigarettes. That's cool, whatever they want to do. They want to kill themselves, that's their business. But I can remember this door to this day, I have dreams of it. Like in The Godfather, they would pull it up with ropes. Like Fat Clemenza would pull a rope to go in and the elevator would take you up or down, obviously, and down in the funeral parlor was where they did the embalming. And I remember one day, it was a summer day, a uh, hot summer day in New York. You know, the kind of day they had ice boxes with Coca-Colas in them and 7-Ups. There was no refrigeration, just blocks of ice. And to get the soda, you had to dip your hand, reach into the ice box and pull the soda out. Your hand would turn blue. Well, it was that kind of day, you see. And um, 
I was working with my father in the store or whatever, and I disappeared for a while next door into the funeral parlor. I have to go back, funeral parlor. There was a nice chauffeur there named Barney, and they would get Cadillacs through this door that just cleared the door by, by I don't know, half an inch. Go down and look at it if you're in New York. There's probably still there. The car would clear these by a quarter of an inch, a half an inch, and you'd go in the elevator and would take the Cadillacs and put them upstairs, you know, the hearses and the flower cars. Barney was the one of the drivers. He was the sweetest guy in the world, and he always was nice to me, and he always dressed in a very dapper way, and uh, he was nice to me. I was the kid. They liked me, you know. There were nice people in those days. I guess there still are somewhere. So he once said to me, hey, kid, Michael, do you want to see a corpse? Now, what kid doesn't want to see a corpse? So I said, sure. So my father didn't know where I was. He figured out, you know, you're around the store. Nothing bad's going to happen because there were other men around who took care of you or watched over you. It was a little community, a neighborhood. So I go with Barney into the elevator. Down I go. He lifts the thing. Down we go into the dark basement. And there was the embalming. I don't have to describe it to you. You could see it anywhere else. You can go to YouTube and find an embalming. Then I come up. Here's the rest of the story. After seeing the, my first corpse uh, being embalmed, and I walk out into the sunny street. You ever go to a movie when you were a kid on a Saturday and you're in, involved in the imaginary the thing of the movie, the cowboy or the gun or the soldier, the love affair, whatever, and you'd come out in the street and the light would hit you. It was like, wow, where am I, right? I came out, it was stunning. It was like a bright July day or something in the summer, but my face must have changed from having seen the... Uh, the, the, the corpse. So my father was looking for me, comes out in the undershirt, Michael, Michael, and he sees my face and he says, where have you been? What were you, where were you? I said, I went downstairs with Barney to see a corpse. He didn't say anything, but I think he was pretty shocked because he saw the change in my face. Nothing more to the story than that. You know, sometimes stories are stories. They don't have to have a powerful ending to have a powerful ending. They don't have to be plotted. You know, I wanna talk about that for a minute. I'm 12 minutes into this already, and I'm kind of in a strange place today, Memorial Day. I've been thinking about it. I'm not good at plotting stories. I'm more of a, um, you know, stream of consciousness guy. I always was known for that in the radio world. No one can match me, no one ever has, no one ever will. I know that, it's okay, I'm a one-off type. And I would start with one thing and end up with 30 others. And some of the great literature in history is stream of consciousness, including the Old Testament, by the way. The Old Testament is a stream of consciousness storybook, by the way. This guy tells the story, and then that one, then this one, then Ezekiel, then you see Daniel, and that's how it went. So I, I always was a stream of consciousness. One story would lead to another, and there's some great writers in history who were stream of consciousness. There's a great Irish writer from the 1600s, whose name escapes me right now. Great stream of consciousness writer. So if I try to make a plot, I'm not great at it. It's, like, it's too mathematical for me. There are those who are geniuses at it. I love to watch movies because they're plotted well. If I watch a Netflix drama, I know it's a plot, start beginning, middle, and end, and the drama, and you have to get the characters, and you have to get hooked up in the characters and care about where they go. I appreciate people who can do that. I'm not denigrating it, but that's not my strength. My strength is telling stories from my life, from my memory, memories, dreams, and reflections, as Jung wrote. Memories dreams and reflections. And so today I've just given you a tidbit, a piece of this storybook, and this piece is called Cyanide. What the title of the book will be one day, I have some ideas, I'm not gonna give it away because there's too many idea thieves out, thieves out there. There's very few real ideas left in the world. And there are people who are hungry for ideas. I have seen my ideas wind up all over the mainstream media without anyone even knowing their mind. I'll give you an example, in The Sopranos. All those years, I love that series, I still watch it because they speak a language I understand very well. 
I watched The Sopranos. I could see pieces of my childhood in that in that, uh, in that show in the early years. They say, did he steal it from me? I don't know. Maybe he listened to the show. Maybe there was some overlap. I mean, he had a dog when he was a child, Tony, called Tippy. Did everyone have a dog named Tippy? I had a dog named Tippy, and I talked about it because Tippy bit my leg right down to the bone. And I still have just got a scar on my foot. So did, did he steal it from me? I doubt it. But how did the name Tippy the dog wind up in there? How did the mother... Uh, in in uh, the Sopranos, be so much like someone I knew, someone I knew. <laughs> the hysteria, the manipulation. How how? I told the stories over and over again. Does that mean that people who wrote the Sopranos listened to me and stole it? Probably not. What it means is there's commonalities in that culture amongst Jews, Italians, and such. And perhaps they listened and they heard and it triggered stuff in them or they ripped it off. Who do I, what do I know? But what I'm saying is pieces of stuff that I did over those. Remember, 25 years as a public broadcaster is a very long time. 25 years, it was my final career before this career. This is like the, the follow through career that I'm in now. I love my Newsmax TV three times a week, four or five minutes. If they give me more than a minute, I'm lucky. Uh, whatever, but I enjoy it. I get ready for it, I do it, and I get, I, I do stuff in those three minutes on Newsmax TV that if you actually trans, transcribe what I say, you have pieces of a whole book, which will be in a book coming out next year. My final uh, nonfiction book. I'm probably gonna do a fiction book, uh, but I'm working on it. It's been a year, I just, I just started as May 2021 on Boat Dock. It started with roses. I, I needed to start somewhere. I just started writing about roses. And it's, it's got a lot in it. Stream of consciousness. I did cyanide um, 12 pages later. I went from roses and the different colored roses. And oh, so this is an important point. What was this book about? It was about an old man. He's 80 years old. Sound familiar? You can call him an older man. And he's trying to ask himself, what's the point of writing a book? No one's going to read it. And if they, if they do read it, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? He just doesn't care if it's a bestseller or a non-seller. You know, if I would have published this book myself, self-publish it and offer it on my website and on YouTube, I could sell, honestly, 10,000 copies in hardcover to my hardcore fans. So you say, well, okay, that's, that's pretty good, 10,000 copies in hardcover. But I don't want to say, it's not like I don't want to sell a book. I'm not looking to make the money on it. So listen to what this character who's writing this book asks himself in the first few pages of Roses. I'm getting distracted now by really getting into what I'm getting into. I'll read you pieces of it. He's writing here and then he says, The beacon of light that drew his grandfather Sam from Bolshevik Russia was fast going out. It was being painted over with the lies, smears, historical falsehoods by the worst among his fellow citizens. Evil power-mad whites, hello, Joe Biden. Evil power-mad whites, hello, Nancy Pelosi, how's your drunk husband? Evil power-mad whites fomenting hatred against the beacon among blacks, browns against the white race. Ooh, I said it, oh my God. I don't think New York's calling for this book. But where could he turn? That's page three. But where could he turn? He had seen all this coming for 40 years, wrote many huge selling books, had a big national radio program, and now naked communists of the Lenin variety had seized power. Some would argue by having rigged voting machines. Any rational objective mind could see that the party of hate, Joe, had been flooding America with illegal voters for decades. Every attempt to require common sense ID to vote had been fought by the gangsters with their stepsisters in the media. Stepsisters like who? Who were the stepsisters of the gangsters in the Democrat Party? Anderson Blooper. Uh, who's the other one who pretends to be neutral? That schmuck on CNN. I actually despise him more than all of them. I don't remember his name. Wolf Blitzer was one of the worst people in the history of America. Flooding them. Okay, so the, the stepsisters in the media, they, 
led the naive to believe wanting only citizens to qualify to vote was racist. Isn't that funny? And now the light of the great beacon of freedom was being dimmed, even snuffed out by the gang that had seized power. Now, listen where I go from there. So he, the character then writes this. So what difference would an experimental short novel make, he thought, why would it matter? A novel so unpredictable, so filled with memories, dreams, reflections, that most would not be able or willing to read beyond the first few pages. See, I know what's going on, I know how it is. Quote, he drove like a Mexican that night, unquote. It was true, and meant to salute the bravado of Mexican men, but would immediately be mischaracterized by the corrupt gatekeepers of literature and the broader media. See, that was the opening line to something. He drove like a Mexican that night. It's a great opening line to another story that's gonna be in here. But I could never publish that today because the girls who run publishing would say, he drove like a Mexican that night. Nancy, isn't that racist and supremacist? Oh yes, we can't publish that. That's from Michael Savage. But that was the opening line of The Detective, by the way, that I wrote. I, I have a great piece that I've held back now for over two years. But Martin remained reluctant to release the novella or long story. What difference would it make, he thought, when the light of freedom was being darkened in America? Not any more or less than a still life or a perfect painting of roses or of other flowers by the great masters came the reverbing reflections. So you see it's an inner dialogue character, me, projecting, saying what the hell is the point of writing this novella when the world is dying in front of his eyes, the light is going out, the light that drew his, father, his grandfather here from Russia. So then he comes to this conclusion. It would be not any more or less than a still life or a perfect painting of roses or other flowers by the great masters came the reverbing reflections. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, I entitled this piece originally, Roses, and I read to you today from a piece of roses called Cyanide in my stream of consciousness, taking you into the basement of 137 Ludlow Street, door, antique store, funeral parlor. And at some point in the future, I will come back and tell you more of this bedtime story. As you can see, I have nothing for sale. Isn't it wonderful? I'm not selling you anything at the end of this, nothing. I'm not telling you to vote for. I'm not gonna sell you anything, not a sock, not a sneaker, nothing. I'm selling you nothing. I'm giving you a gift. And I hope that some of you are veterans or no veterans, if you're in a hospital, in a VA hospital, and this YouTube gets to you, it was a story for you on this Memorial Day year, 2022. And at this time, I'm Michael Savage. If you enjoyed this little video, you can support the entire cause by going to the Michael Savage podcast. The Michael Savage podcast is the machine that drives everything else. It's doing very well indeed and it drives all these other things. And I appreciate if you patronize the Michael Savage podcast. And now I have to press buttons to say goodbye. Thank you for listening. Now before I go, I do have to say something else. It would be, I feel empty by not saying something else. I think of the crosses on all of those war memorials, the graves rather. And I watched the History Channel of the boys, 18 years old, 19 years old. I'm going all the way back to World War II. You can go to Iraq if you want. You can, they fought the Noble War, whether it was deceptive of Bush to have sent them there is irrelevant. Go back to World War II and you see these fresh-faced boys, 18, 19, 20 years old. What did they die for? So they could be told to wear a dress in the military? They could be told that they should crap on their flag. Would they have died 
if they knew this was going to be done to them by the Wolf Blitzers and the Jake Tappers and the vermin of Hollywood? See, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there, but I, I have such contempt for these scumbags, these left-wing bastards, what they have done to the name of this nation. They've lied about everything. The Eddies who gave their lives to defeat Hitler. Look what the world, look at the world we're living in. Look at the filth who have taken over this country. Would they have done, I watch these World War II movies, you know, the documentaries, sometimes tears come to my eyes. I just can't believe the sacrifice of the duty, honor, country of these men. And then I see the scum of the earth in the media in particular. Forget Joe Biden, he's a low life of the lowest order. He is one of the most vile types of human beings. He stands for nothing, he always was a nothing, he always was second to someone, he always was a pocketbook carrier, he always was a bum and a bag man. And through chance, circumstance, and manipulating the vote, he is now ruining the entire world. And waiting in the wings is the other one put in there by the Nancy Pelosi machine here in San Francisco. God save America. You can take that to the bank. You can take that to the bank with Michael Savage. Maybe that'll be another uh, YouTube video. You can take that to the bank. Now watch a TV writer in LA will steal that. I, I, I just heard it in my head. I so what just happened. Some bum strung out on drugs in LA is gonna watch this. What a show that would be. You can, you can take that to the bank. Maybe they could hire Robert De Niro to play the part. You can take that to the bank. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Middle East on the brink. North Korea on the brink. Iran increasing its aggression. Elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, gold Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989-898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989-898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989-898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989-898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Keeping on the theme of memories, here is a segment of my radio show from March of 2012. 2012, that's 10 years ago, where we discussed growing up poor and how most kids do not know they were poor if they had family because they were kind of happy. Even though they were wearing hand-me-down clothing, cardboard there in their shoes or they missed meals, they didn't know they were poor. I found that out to be true. So I'm talking about poverty. I'm talking about your poverty, my poverty, his poverty. And and I'm my point is, what was your poverty like if you grew up poor? Let America really know, because you're going to tell stories today on this show that might shock people who, who don't realize what poverty really is. So let's go to the first caller. You're all invited to join the parade. Sacramento, Roger, go ahead, please. You grew up poor. Tell us what it was like. Yes, Dr. Savage. Uh uh, when uh, Pop would buy us uh, one pair of shoes a year, and it had to last all the way through the school year, when the soles ran out, we had to put, take cereal boxes and cut cardboard, put it in our shoes until Pop was ready to buy us another pair of shoes, holes in our jeans, Mom would put patches, and if we... Wait a minute, you sound awfully similar to Governor Jerry Brown. Are you the governor just having fun with me? 
No, sir. This is. Ah, come on. I'm just. No, you, you sound like Jerry Brown being you're calling from Sacramento. Come on, Roger. Seriously? You actually put cardboard in your shoes? I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, in a steel town, 1943. Grew up. Oh. 40s and 50s, and uh, my dad was a hardworking man, and I think he was trying to teach us a lesson on taking care of the things that were given to us. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, I did the same. In other words, I lined the shoes. I had more than one pair of shoes, but I lined them up under my bed, and I kept them polished. Would you believe it? I've always been the same, very fanatic about taking care of my things ever since I grew up with so little. I took care of what I had. It's very interesting, isn't it? That's how I learned. That's how I and, and no, it's funny. Even though, let's say, you grow older and you get a little successful and you have money, I still won't leave lights on in the house. And people laugh at me. They say, what are you turning off lights for? What are you, cheap? You know what my answer is? I don't know. It's just in me. Why not turn a light bulb off if you're not in the room? Why must it be on? Do you still do a thing like that? Well, you, the audience won't believe me, but I do. I do. I'm sitting in my house. It's cold right now. I have the heat turned off. I have my water. <laughs> I love it. Well, I don't like heat to begin with. It dries me out. They, they, they think that they're living like in the Russian Revolution with me. They think it's like Dr. Zhivago in my house. I'd rather walk around like with a coat on in the house than run heat. Not to save money. I don't like heat. It makes me feel sick. So you really grew up that poor, but you did okay later on or you're still poor? Well, I'm doing better now. I've learned how to invest. Uh, I lived in a travel trailer for 19 years of my life and just got into a little house. I'm starting to save money, and uh, but the government seems to be wanting to take a lot of it away, so I'm kind of stripping back into the financial situation I was. Uh-oh, not good. Yeah, but you're never going to go back to that level of poverty of putting cardboard in your shoes. Thank you very much for sharing. No, here's a caller. You're not going to believe this. Ann Arbor Mish. Rick. Welcome to the Savage Nation. Tell us your poverty story. Yeah, we uh, when I was a kid, I was born in the fifties, and and my father moved around a lot. We lived in tents, and actually back then the tents didn't have bottoms in them, so when it rained, we had to dig ditches around the tent to keep from washing out. That is amazing. This is almost like the grapes of wrath. You say you moved around. Were they itinerant workers or what? He just moved from factory to factory, but we still had food. We still had government food. We had government cheese. We had uh, government milk. We had the government meat. You know, we didn't have food stamps, but we still had food. So in that, in that sense, you have to say, thank God the government distributed excess food? I mean, you, you have to agree with that, right? We go to food banks, you know. Yeah, but I'm saying that what I'm saying, there is a place for government assistance. I'm not one of these fanatics who say there should be no government help for the poor. I mean, people would starve to death. Don't you think, Rick? I can't really say we were poor because we still had food. And I'm saying A, he's saying B. But Rick wouldn't, you, Rick, wouldn't you agree with me that there's a role for the government in assisting people who are poor? Right. If there's no means, if they have no means. That's correct. And, and if they're not able-bodied and they can't find work, you got to help people. You can't let them starve to death. See, that's why I say I'm an independent conservative. I don't take this hard line, oh, let them find a job, let them go out and create a business. That's such rubbish. There's no way to do that in some in some cases. Absolutely no way whatsoever. Well, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I, you know, this is a, turning into a very good topic, by the way. But, you know, what is a vacation, you know, when you were poor? Think about that. We had, uh, uh, we lived in the apartment. My father always had a car because he needed it for his business to go down to the to Manhattan to his little store to make deliveries. Some one of my books I wrote, they'll all come out when he delivered the bronzes out out there to the guy with the one breast, you know, the, the circus, half man, half woman. That's a heck of a story. To believe these things existed, but they did. So we had an apartment and a car, but nothing else, you know dead man's pants but i never wanted for a meal and i never felt poor see that's the point i'm trying to make i'm trying to make a point is that most kids don't even know they're poor if they have the security of parents and friends and some family around and they eat they're not poor they don't know poverty it's like a sajat ray movie if you know what i'm referring to the old movies, uh, the, mo the, the films about poverty in India. In, very, in many ways, I used to relate to those movies because those lives were very rich. There's a, lot of ri there's a lot of richness, by the way, in poor neighborhoods and a lot of poverty in rich neighborhoods. You've heard that? Because you know what I'm talking about. How many McMansions have you been in with the, the stainless this and the stainless that and a, a thousand square foot kitchen that has never been cooked in? There's no smell of food. No one ever sits around a table, right? So that's what I mean by poverty inside the rich home and et cetera. 
I don't know if that still applies truthfully, but I know that in the immigrant communities today, I see it myself. If, if I drive through a community near where I live, which is largely Hispanic immigrants, you think it looks any different than it looked the way my life looked to me as a kid? It doesn't. I see most of the people struggling off to work. They're going back to crowded apartments with lots of relatives. And they're all together, and they have uh, the ups and downs of life together. And some of them, you know, already have a car, and the one who has the car tries to show it off that it's better than his neighbor's car. It's identical to my upbringing. In that sense, there's a continuum of the immigrant life in America. Now, you could say from that point forward, though, where does it differ? The level of gangs in this country today was never equal to the level of gangs amongst the poor in my day, for example. You could argue maybe it was. If you go back to the early days when the Italians came here. I know you're not going to want to hear it. And the early days of the gang wars between the uh, Irish and the Italians and the Jews, they were shooting each other in the streets with machine guns. That was before my time. How different is that when you think about it from the MS-13 tattooed people killing themselves today or the Crips and the Bloods 10 years ago uh, when they were going through their power struggle? Was it any different? Was it a, a larger number of people killed? How do you compare Murder Incorporated uh, in the days of the uh, Euro immigrants to the uh, murder incorporated of today. I mean, was it worse then or is it the same today? So you can over um, exaggerate the crime wave in America if you don't really look at the historic context. And I haven't done the an epidemiological study in the sense of, you know, what the rate of murder was. I don't really know. Well, of course, we'd all like a, a cleaner, safer country. But I'm not so sure it's much different than it was is the point even in those days amongst the Euro immigrants in that regard. There are big differences, though. The Euro immigrants all wanted to learn English. They all wanted to be American, with exception usually of the old country people uh, who didn't. I mean, my grandmother never spoke a word of English. I don't know if you know this. I've told you this before. She never spoke to me in one word of English that I remember. She didn't know English. She didn't understand it. She was a very old woman when she got here. And she was very stoic. She didn't demand very much. There was no welfare. No one asked for the government to give her a dime. I'm going to put a picture of her in my, uh, in my, Chris, uh, well, you see her. This woman was really good. I loved her. That was my Russian grandmother. She looks like an American Indian with like very stoic, like the high cheekbones. That's where I got my good looks from. I'm pretty sure. I mean, no disrespect to the other side of the family, but an artist once told me I'd make a good subject because I have high cheekbones and I'd be a very good uh, subject of a sculpture. I'm actually having a sculpture made, a bust made in my head. I never like the word bust of a head. I didn't understand that as a kid. I would turn red when someone said, what do you think of the bust? I thought they were referring to the chest. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know it meant the head, you know, bust. Look at the bust. I mean, my father was in the antique business. So if someone say, uh, can I see that bust? I thought they were talking dirty to him. I'd run away in the back of the store. My face would turn. Kids don't know. They mix things up, but... But I have a sculptor, a very famous guy from San Francisco, I'm not going to mention his name yet, who's uh, going to be sculpting my head. Now, it's an interesting story unto itself. Why? What kind of ego does it take to have yourself sculpted while you're living? I don't know. I want to do it. Why? I'll tell you exactly why. There's a Chinese restaurant. See, everything relates to the food. There's a Chinese restaurant I go to in San Francisco where the owners, I love these people, they have like giant bronze statues of the head, busts now of the, the the grandfather and the grand no the mother and father who built the restaurant and then the grandfather and grandmother and i love looking at them because they have the dates of the grandmother's death and she like died at like very young and it was like she died in 1938 so i said what happened he said she was killed in, in the revolution in china at that time but the point is is that these are photo likeness busts that were made by a Chinese sculpture of bronze. They're great. You, like you send photographs, and for some way to do it, they, they put it into a computer, and then they sculpt the thing, maybe by machine, and they come out fantastic. I'm not having one of those done. I'm not I'm not having a photo likeness done. This, this sculpture is very famous all over the world. He's done a couple of books. He's going to do an artistic rendition. God knows what it's going to look like. I hope it's not too, you know, overbearing. But nevertheless, why? I don't know why I'm doing it. I want one for me and one for each of my kids. And that's about it. And by the way, if you want a small little autographed copy, they're only fourteen ninety nine available in tin in Bolivia. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna sell them sell them on a site in, in Bogota. So uh, yeah, poverty, poverty, poverty does suck. There's no question about it. Robert in New York, tell us your poverty story. 
yeah, we used to go on vacation to the fire hydrant at the end of the block. I mean, that was our big thing. And if my father, from his two jobs, saved enough money, we could actually go to Orchard Beach on the bus, which wasn't too often. I absolutely agree with you. The hydrant was the swimming pool. And and by the way, the cops would come by and they would look the other way because the poor kids were basically waiting in the fire hydrant water in the street, remember? Then they came along with these caps that that made it come out a little bit less than just a full force, which was because I'm a little bit younger than you, so we didn't. Oh, they put a restrictor on it. No, in my day, it was like Niagara Falls would come out. In fact, if you stood in front of it, it would throw you across the street. It was so much fun, the force of those fire hydrants, now that you remind me. Oh, yeah, we loved it. The cars were coming by, and they, you know, we didn't care. They, we, they didn't stop for us. But, you know, who cares? You know, I, it's funny. You bring back memories. I can, to this day, when you mention it, I remember the smell of pavement on a hot day where it got so stifling hot that when water hit the pavement, the, the smell of the pavement coming, the asphalt coming off from the water hitting it, you know, that smell is amazing. It comes back to, it's like remembrances of things past, but we're not talking about the petite Madelans here. We're talking about asphalt and water. Remember your feet sticking into the asphalt before the water hit it? it was so hot. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I do. Unbelievable. Today they would call the EPA and have your, uh, you, you have you arrested for for stepping in the asphalt. Either that, or will you get child abuse for letting your kid step in the asphalt? Right. Uh, who knows what it did to you? You know, it might have uh, shortened your lifespan. Uh, did you, do you ever think that that's why you you are the man you are, listening to talk radio instead of making a living at this hour of the day? I'm just driving home from work, so... Ah, come on, I'm pulling your leg. (laughs) Thanks for that trip down memory lane. I hope you don't mind my doing this. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Now, here is the most frequently requested childhood story of mine. It's called Dead Man's Pants. For those of you who have heard it before, enjoy it again. And for those of you who have never heard it before, it's absolutely true. Of all the people I run into once in a while, they say, you know, I loved your childhood stories. And the most interesting one to me was Dead Man's Pants. So now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dead Man's Pants. Growing up in the Bronx as I did, the man-child in the promised land, I didn't have many of the luxuries most kids with their hats on back would take for granted today. My father was an immigrant. He worked his fingers to the bone. We simply didn't have the money to afford more than the basics, so as you might expect, I cherished and took care of the things I had. As a kid, I'd line up my shoes under my bed at night, neat like in the military. I made sure they were polished, too. I'm sure some shrink today would say I suffered from ADD or other compulsive behavior disorders and should have been put on a regimen of drugs. I wonder what they'd say about the fact that through most of my youth I wore secondhand pants from dead men. Many of the pants I wore as a preteen came off of stiffs cut down to fit me. Now don't get me wrong, my father was a good man. He ran a small antique store with mostly 19th century stuff. On the side, at least in the beginning, he sold used goods as well. A man's got to do what a man's got to do to make ends meet, right? Occasionally, he would go to an auction after a man died and buy the entire estate. The clocks, the dishes, the mirrors, whatever the man had. The pants, the shirts, the whole deal. You get the picture? Back at the store as he sorted the stuff for resale, he'd take a closer look at the suit. Once he got a hot shafter and mock suit from a dead man. Now, what's he going to do? Toss it in the garbage like they do today? In those days, it wasn't in him to throw out a good worsted fabric. Instead, he brought home the pants to me. I remember my father called me to the bedroom and showed them to me like the head tailor at Nordstrom's department store. He'd say, now, Michael, get a good look at the fabric. I wanted to vomit. I got a migraine because I knew what was coming. Take a look at the quality of this fabric. He's working me like a salesman. He's unrolling the pants on the bed. I can see it to this day. He unrolls it like he's selling me a bolt of handwoven cloth. He would say, you can't get fabric like this anywhere. I wanted to say, of course not, Dad. They only sell stuff like that for men who died. You know, it was like special clothing for the undertaker. Even if I had said something, that wouldn't have changed one thing. He'd go downtown and the pants would come back fit for me. You know, shortened without the legs taken improperly. 
They, <laughs> I'm sorry. They ended up baggy like an Abbott and Costello pair of pants. <laughs> I'm sorry. They ended up baggy like an Abbott and Costello pair of pants. Even if they had fit me properly, there was something repugnant about the whole idea. Like I said, I knew how to make do with whatever was at hand. There's an old saying, the man with no shoes complains until he meets the man with no feet. The fact that I didn't have much more than a place to sleep in my first little apartment after college was okay with me. At least I wasn't wearing dead man's pants. Little did I know that one day those awful pants would serve as a metaphor for the shift in my political orientation. You might find it interesting that I wasn't always an independent conservative. I was raised a Democrat, blue-collar home. My dad was a Democrat. My mom was a Democrat. Most of my relatives still vote Democrat. To an immigrant family whose parents came of age during the Great Depression, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the great white savior. Aside from being the only U.S. president re-elected to office three times, he gained lasting political mileage with the relief that his New Deal offered. As you might expect, then, my father used to tell me, Michael, all I know is the Democrats are for the little guy and the Republicans are for big business. In a way, his attempt to sell me on the political leanings of the Democrat Party was no different than his sales job with the dead man's pants. He was selling me a failed ideology that should have been buried long ago. So as a young man, not seeing things as clearly as I do now, I voted as my dad did, since I didn't understand politics. But as I grew older, that view would change completely. The turning point in my thinking can be traced back to my first job out of college as a social worker in the Upper West Side of New York. All of my so-called clients were minorities. Now, I was a good liberal at the time, having had my brain washed at one of the city universities in New York by a whole slew of European immigrants who, instead of kissing the ground when they got here, urinated on the sacred soil and the flag and immediately sought to instill communist philosophy in the minds of the young, myself included. I didn't know that at the time. I was just a wide-eyed liberal kid with an eye on changing the world. There I was, fresh out of Queens College. Having minored in sociology, I figured I'd take a job as a social worker to save the, quote, oppressed minority. I was always an idealist. I still am, as a matter of fact. But the abuses of the welfare system that I saw back then nauseated me and started me on my slow road to recovery. Day after day, I found person after person who was working who had a job but who claimed they didn't so they could get their government handout. Worse, they knew they were ripping off the welfare system and didn't bat an eye. How could I be so sure these hucksters weren't swindling Uncle Sam? I mean, you could argue that they were oppressed and didn't know the rules. Not me. At a young age, I learned a valuable lesson on how to spot people who smile to your face while robbing you blind the second your back was turned. Home of Borders. Language. Culture. The Savage Nation. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Finally, here are a few more classic stories about my life growing up. Both are continuously requested on this podcast. One is called Fat Al's Tuna, Lessons from a Tuna Fish Sandwich, <laughs> and When Pasta Was Spaghetti. Please enjoy this podcast today. Cyanide, a childhood memory. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, you can do me a favor and everyone else who listens to this, and that is patronize our advertisers and tell five people about the Michael Savage Podcast. Now, Fat Al's Tuna, that's a recipe. When I was a boy working as a uh, busboy in the Shanks Paramount Hotel, I saw how tuna was really made. Fat Al was a 350-pounder. Now, when he made tuna in a tureen, he didn't use a mix mask. They used his hairy forearm. He had a cigarette dangling from the right side of his mouth, and the kitchen was banging and bustling, and the people were out there eating a ninth meal of the afternoon. And he was mixing a tuna. He would throw the cans of tuna in. They'd throw in vats of mayonnaise. And the guy stirred it with his arm. He had a he rolled up his undershirt. You see, you got to vi visualize this. Fat Al would lean over that tureen with the arm, the big, giant Italian arm, full of hair. And his arm was mayonnaise thick up to his armpit. And he's got the arm moving around. And he said, you see, kid, you keep moving it till you get a nice, creamy consistency. Meanwhile, the ashes falling off his cigarette. I guess that helped the taste of the tuna because the people never complained. They loved it. Now, that's a tuna. There is a proper tuna with a little sweat and arm hair. Now, that is a good tuna fish recipe. Other than that, I don't want to talk about recipes. Shall I tell you about lessons from a tuna fish sandwich? 
Lessons from a tuna fish sandwich on the Savage Nation. Nah, I don't want to tell you about that. I'll, I'll, I'll make it the short version. I was nine years old. I went to work with my father, right? And then I wanted to eat. My father screamed down the stairs as I was cleaning bronze. He said, go buy some lunch. So while I was out of the basement, my heart started to race when it came clear that he wasn't going with me. I hated the thought of facing the mean streets of Lower East Side alone, dodging the rats, the garbage, and the thugs hanging out in the street corners. I think my father saw my hesitation, but he insisted that I face those horrible streets alone. Sending me out into the byways of Manhattan was how he wanted to toughen me up. My father thought I might be too soft, you know, growing up in a safer neighborhood as we did, so off I go in search of lunch. Several blocks away was a restaurant that served no meat, just salads, tuna fish, and such. I ordered the tuna, paid the man behind the counter, and a few minutes later headed back to the store. When I gave my father the sandwich, he opened it up and saw a huge dead fly in it. I'll never forget his reaction. His face turned red. His eyes went wide as twin saucers and the veins along both sides of his neck bulged. He looked as if he were ready to erupt like Mount St. Helens. Dad was infuriated that someone would take advantage of his kid like this. He assumed that they did it on purpose just to be spiteful. They probably did, but what did I know? Now, my father wasn't necessarily a violent man, but in that moment, he looked as if he could have strangled a bear with his bare hands. He was incensed by the sheer wrongness of what he had discovered. So, my dad grabbed me by the hand and dragged me up the street, back to that lousy luncheonette. He opens the door with a bang and looks around. The sleepy customers glance up from their menus with interest at this new development. Dad spots the owner coming out of the kitchen wearing a smirk and an apron as if nothing was wrong. My father unloaded with both barrels, yelling, How dare you give my son a sandwich with a fly in it? The deli man said, Don't worry, I didn't charge you for it. I learned a valuable lesson that day. I learned that there are bad people in the world who will do bad things for whatever reason, and that remaining silent when faced with wrongdoing isn't an option. It might be unpopular to take a stand. It might turn a few heads. But my father taught me to speak up in the face of adversity. Which brings us to Obama's socialist revolution, which is far worse than planting a fly in a tuna sandwich, <laughs> which is all the more reason you and I have an obligation to speak against the destruction he's planning of this once great country. So that's not bad. You see, lessons from a tuna fish sandwich. Who else could do that? Italian music because I have a treat for you. I found the poem when pasta was spaghetti in my archives. It was written, let's see, Michael Savage, August 1985, written in a lightning storm at 40,000 feet over Cheyenne, Wyoming. When I thought the plane was going to crash, I wrote when pasta was spaghetti. So here it is, whether you like it or not, all right? So you liberals get ready to sneer and you sane people get ready to enjoy it because it's a wonderful poem. So play the music again. Go ahead. <laughs> the mood we got the mood set up it's called when pasta was spaghetti and try to imagine it all right the hairy forearms of new york serve you your coffee with a turning gesture an offering that says drink eat enjoy the wiry italian and vincent's clam bar the one behind the greased over register the young kid connected who receives his deference from the spaghetti cook older than his gangster father the spaghetti cook who looks like an old-fashioned doctor from the bronx with clipped mustache he actually pulls some noodles out of the pot and eats them as they cook looking to the grimy ceiling for his tender answer well they used to call it spaghetti now it's pasta at 10 bucks a plate. The smoky windows of Romeo's Spaghetti now offers radios and knickknacks. It was 50 cents a plate then. In neon letters that you couldn't miss, even through a fogged over window on a cold winter's eve, there was life. Marinara sauce that smacked to the sea. Noodles as long as your young arm. Meatballs as fluffy as your dream of them. Bread on the table you'd eat against your parents' admonitions that the meal was coming, the meal was coming. And men, some burly with black hairy forearms whose smiles scared you. And little skinny guys with the look of murder on their faces. And people who slurped their spaghetti straight to their mouths from the plate. One motion like Chinese shoveling rice at mouth with clicking sticks. That was gusto before it became a beer ad. That was taste before it became a synonym for fashion. That was the spaghetti before it became pasta. Play the music, basta. Well, 
Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com